7.03, and I got to tell you, I'm really excited for this one. It's Iron Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo here as well. And why I say I'm excited, Ira, is one, because you're back in studio. So welcome back uh, to South Florida. I know you've been busy. Oh, yeah, it's awesome to be here. Um, we've also got John Feinstein coming on in just a little bit. Um, John is a very accomplished author, sports writer. He's been doing this for decades. Tell us a little bit about John, uh, if we're not familiar. Well, anyone who reads uh, in terms of books, in terms of sports, I think he's the number one uh, writer. He had 39 books on sports. And uh, The Season on the Brink with uh, Bobby Knight is his most famous book mm -hmm. in terms of, but he's had every book about the Masters and, and all this. But he came out with a book called The Prodigy, which is this, he called it Factition. And it's for a young adult book. And it, I just read it this weekend. It almost made me cry. <laughs> like It's like if Tiger Woods came on again, what it would be like. And it was it's pretty awesome. It was it was a it was a tremendous book and we're gonna talk to John. We did we actually recorded the interview a little earlier mm -hmm. and we're gonna put that in. But it was he's uh he we asked him about Tiger Woods, his opinions, real strong opinions. He of, does a very strong very strong. He does not sugarcoat anything. And the book is interesting because it's almost it was it's a lesson in terms of uh uh the the Frank Baker is the mm -hmm. protagonist in this and he's a seventeen year old top golfer and who goes to the masters uh to has to win and go to the masters. It's just great book and it's sort of like he sort of makes fun of Tiger a little bit in this book saying look this is what where Tiger went wrong in the book That's mm -hmm. you know this is going to be a great interview right about uh, maybe 725 here on Ira on sports um, one of the other reasons I'm excited Ira I'm a huge fan of the NFL draft I think more than the average I love the draft and we're going to break it down very comprehensively you have who you estimate or who you would take um, pretty much everyone through Pittsburgh so we'll talk about the NFL draft we've got uh, NBA is in full swing with the playoffs so is hockey, and we're going to talk about that as interesting series for your boys in Pittsburgh. Not doing as good as your baseball team. That's all coming up tonight on Iron Sports. Ira, first and foremost, I love getting uh, texts from you. You know, early in the evening or or a little bit later when you're on the West Coast, never knowing where you're going to be. And uh, this was a good one this week. Where where were you? Well, I won. It was the series was one one, so I was excited to go to Brooklyn to see Game Three uh, in in Brooklyn on Thursday night uh, at the Barclays Center. I I like the Barclays Center. It's it's a I've different well, it's a different stadium. It's not. It's in Brooklyn. First of all, it's super easy to get to, um, and you could just go. There's about a thousand subways that run from everywhere, mm -hmm. and you get there. It's in Brooklyn. It has a totally different feel than Madison Square Garden. It's much smaller than Madison Square Garden by like four thousand fans. It's a pure basketball only uh, arena, and they put hockey there, but it doesn't really fit in the arena. Mm -hmm. It's all black. It's a weird statement. It's like an all-black stadium in terms of all the seats, all the. It's just very dark, but it is. It it's on the one side. It doesn't even have seats. It has like a booth for the DJ, and uh, <laughs> you can look outside and look into Brooklyn. And then they have um, a, so a lot of the seats on the ends of the courts, where usually are the bad seats, are more like these VIP where they serve food and you have a table and those things. It's a weird type arena. It's not like other arenas, uh, but I enjoyed it. The food is great there. I mean, they you're not looking for hot dogs and hamburgers. They have chicken milanese. They have a really? lot of local Brooklyn restaurants that have mm. these Brooklyn fare that people like to have. Um, and it's also, it's a fun place to be because there's a lot of restaurants around the arena that's mm. been coming up. So you can actually walk to other places when the game's over. Um, and it's, it's the, the Brooklyn fans like being Brooklyn fans. I mean, it is a different feel than Madison Square Garden. You go to Madison Square Garden and it's the Nick corporate feel. These are corporations. That, the Brooklyn fans are true Brooklyn fans. So I, I like going to games there. And, you know, that, that brings up an interesting question. Do you, do you think it's the same people that were Nets? You know, New Jersey Nets fans? Is it a lot of those um, types? Or you think it's people that just were in New York? I'm like, well, we got a new team. Let's support them. Brooklyn is is uh, growing. So, I mean, in terms of Brooklyn is growing, it has a lot. But it, in terms of the feel of the town and the identity, uh, it's not really a town because it's part of New York, but the borough. Uh, mm. I think these are Brooklyn fans. These are people that are looking to identify. There's a lot of people that I know that live in Brooklyn that, that Manhattan, they'll just won't go. I yeah, mean, they, yeah. they'll Absolutely. just stay in Brooklyn. You can go to restaurants. You can live there. You can. It's it, So it's it's become its own place. So, uh, you know, I think it has, I think this this team has fit in well. And it's you can go to the games. It's a very diverse crowd. All, uh, Brooklyn is very diverse itself. So you yeah. have a, a, all different types of minorities that are there. Um, it's, a, it's, it's just a great, it's a great atmosphere. And I think people take, they like their team a lot. And that especially this year when everybody counted their team out and no one gave their team any credit and now they made the playoffs. So I think people are happy about that. Yeah, they're arguably one of the best coach teams in the league. He's making the most out of, you know, nominal talent there to to get them uh, to get them to where they are in the East. Um, okay, let's talk about the game itself. And this has kind of been a series in general that's been kind of mired by um, controversy a little bit between Joel Embiid and uh, Jared Dudley. 
Well, the Nets shocked them in game one. And uh, and that so then you get back to in Philly and then Philly easily won game two one forty five one twenty three and then after the game there was one position where Embiid went up for a dunk and he like elbowed uh, uh, Allen the center for the Nets and then it was a really hard elbow and then after the game they were like well it was an accident maybe you got in my way Simmons and Embiid were joking around with it and people didn't really like that I mean the the, the Nets fans didn't like how they talked about in terms of this was coming back to Brooklyn so whenever but also Simmons made comments too now and right. Right before the game, I'm sitting there, and Bede was at warm-ups but decided not to play. Mm-hmm. But Simmons played. True. So yeah. every time Simmons had the ball, everybody booed him. And it was it was hostile. I mean, fans were really into this game. They're really mad with the Sixers. But the Sixers... They played well, even without Embiid in the game. Tobias Harris, who they traded for from the Clippers, came over. He had a great game. He had 29 points, 16 boards. He shot six for six from threes. And uh, uh, it's interesting that J.J. Redick had 26 points, and Simmons had probably his best game of his career in the playoffs, 11 for 13, 31 points, and nine assists. But the star player for Brooklyn is D'Angelo Russell. Remember, he played for the Lakers. Yeah. And he was going to be third overall pick. The third think, overall yeah. pick from Ohio State. Had the Lakers said, We're done with you. Your attitude's bad. You don't it just they didn't they just gave him really to Brooklyn for nothing. Just get him out just to, mm-hmm. to, to drop a contract. Now he's an all-star and now he's the star of the team. And yeah, he's looking doubt. great. He plays great. They have a Chris Levert who hurt himself early in the year, came back. He play, he's a he's an up-and-coming 23-year-old superstar too. So you can see the foundation, and a lot of people are saying, wait a second maybe a guy like Kyrie maybe Durant don't just put him in Madison Square Garden maybe they would go to Brooklyn so there's a chance but with a great coaching with his young the, the team and the, I said the town or the borough loves the enthusiasm <laughs> the oh they play so hard I mean the talent level on the Sixers is so much greater than Brooklyn yeah. but it's they're still hanging in there and then they came back though and then in game four so I saw the game where they, they blew him it was 131-115 and then really this the fourth game four in Brooklyn was a chance Brooklyn really needed to win that game the Sixers ended up winning 112-108 Embiid started the game sat the whole first quarter and then came back it sat out then came back and played really really well at the, for the rest of the game had 31 points and uh and and 16 rebounds and six blocks in 32 minutes and the game was like back and forth at the end and uh it was uh mike scott for who one of the reserves for philadelphia hit a three uh at the end of the game and then jared allen had the ball and they really, at the end of the game, trying to just take the lead or actually tie the game. And they converged around him and made him turn the ball over. A lot of people, the NBA came out and said there was a foul on him. They should have called the foul. But right now, Brooklyn's in a hole 3-1. They're going to go back to Philly for, the, for game mm-hmm. five. It looks like this series. Is, you're going to see the common theme about these playoffs. Every series is either over or about to be over the next two days, except for San Antonio and Denver. You know, there's a lot of people talking today, Ira, about what the 76ers are going to do going forward. I mean, obviously, they've got Simmons and Embiid locked up um, for a a little while at least, but they're going to have to make a decision with Butler or Tobias Harris. Who would you keep? Well, I think they're going to try to keep them both, and they could, but Butler um, got thrown out of the last game uh, for... It's an interesting team. Butler... Jimmy Butler is played was a star of Chicago. Then he went to Minnesota, and he was he got he he had to leave Chicago because he couldn't work with the young players mm-hmm. there. He goes to Minnesota, who has a good young team, and he couldn't. It was dysfunctional with all the young players there. And he goes to Philadelphia, and he's sort of fitting in, but it's it's just difficult. I don't think the chemistry. That's why I think that Toronto will beat Philadelphia in the next series. I don't. I still don't think they have very good chemistry. They seem to be. It's sort of like your ball, my ball. It, it, they they're not working well together. They have a lot of talented players, and uh, Brooklyn just can't exploit the weaknesses that Philadelphia has. Um, going to the series you just mentioned, uh, Toronto, they're, uh, they're kind of handing it to the Magic now. We, we kind of saw this coming. Well, I, I, Orlando surprised them in the first game. But since then, the Raptors have just been amazing. And, and, and it's really Kawhi Leonard is the difference. 37 points in Game 2, 34 points in Game 4. Um, they blew him out last night. They're up 3-1 They're gonna in, in Orlando. They're going to come back to Toronto, probably win that. I think that's on Tuesday. Um, Pascal Siakam, who I've talked about, I mean, he is emerging as a superstar. Mm. He had 22 points, 9 rebounds for the series. And this is a series where they, in the past, they had DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. Lowry really hasn't played well, but they don't need him to play well now because Pascal Siakam is so good. They brought Danny Green in on the Leonard trade. He's been hitting about two threes a game. And they traded Valasunas for Gasol, and Marc Gasol has played great for them. I mean, Toronto, as I said before this started, they're my team to go the whole way. They're going to be in the NBA Finals. They look like the perfect team. 
you did also pick up right here on Iron Sports, which you are listening to, by the way, 713. It's the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. John Feinstein joins us in about 10 minutes. Um, you picked Milwaukee to be the best team in the East when, you know, before the season started, and they're really looking like it. They're taking it to the Pistons. Well, Detroit, well, the other thing that's interesting about Toronto is that and you're starting to see with lots of these rosters and the same thing will go with Boston is that these teams now have shortened their bench. What that means is they're playing less people on the bench and everybody sort of has a rotation. Toronto brings in Powell, Abaka, and Van Fleet. And that really works out that Van Fleet is a very good guard, Abaka's a forward, and Powell's a shooter. And that sort of fits in how they, when you watch these teams, you really can't have play like 10 guys now. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is to win these games. But Detroit was terrible at the end of the season. I mean, this is one. This is my this game. This series should have been Miami, Milwaukee. Should have been. Uh, and, and Detroit had lost, I think, twelve of the last fourteen games of the season. They, none of these games have even been competitive. They're going to play tonight. It's been thirty-five points, twenty-one points, and sixteen points. Um, Giannis is averaging twenty-four points. Uh, Giannis is just tremendous uh, for Milwaukee. And they're all. They're, you're seeing from Milwaukee. Giannis has Adetokounmpo, who is the MVP candidate, if he's not going to do it. Middleton, who shoots the lights out Bledsoe who they acquired in a trade from mm-hmm. Phoenix as Great a trade. guard averaging 20 points a game and then they have the interesting thing like Brooke Lopez who sort of bounced around in the leagues he played for the Nets but he, he's found a perfect home there in in Milwaukee as a big center and played great Mursuk has come in and done well and, and George Hill so they have veterans like George Hill who played for San Antonio for years and was in the NBA finals and won a title for them they they have a mix of young players veteran players they're playing great um, and they're you know they're set. this this hasn't even been a series I mean every game's but it's been over by the third quarter speaking of not a series Boston and Indiana. I mean, I think it's time to start putting Jason Tatum in the superstar <laughs> column to me. I mean, he was clearly uh, the steal of, of, of that draft, and he looks great for Boston. Well, Indiana losing Oladipo. Uh, everyone saw this coming. I think that the series, it's weird. The Celtics have only won by 4, 8, and eight and 10. It's a 4-0 sweep, um, and, but it was... Uh, but now they're set, they're settling into an eight-man rotation role. And Kyrie Irving has played well in the series. I'm not willing to say, look, Boston looks good. Boston looks like they're playing well. Uh, Gordon Hayward, coming off the bench, had 20 points in Game 4. He's looks like he's playing well. Jason Tatum averaging 19 points on 54% shooting, and he's shooting 50% from three. Looks like he's playing great. Uh, Terry Rozier, who is struggling as a backup to Kyrie, now playing 20 minutes, is coming in well. They have Marcus Morris, who's coming in shooting well. And, and again, off the bench, Jalen Brown, Aaron Baines – they look like a team that's now setting in the roles. They look great, but I don't, as again, I don't think Indiana was the type of team that was going to challenge them. Uh, Milwaukee is After go- losing Oladipo, like no. you said, they're a new team. Milwaukee is going to be, is going to put pressure on them in a, in a way that they did not experience against Indiana. The, the, the East is setting up we thought we saw this. I think Charles Barkley said, "I knew this in October." Well, I don't know if you do it in October, but these are the four best teams. They've been the four best teams all year. And what's exciting about this is that I can make a case for any one of these four teams to make it to the NBA Finals. So we should have a really great semifinal in the East round. Finally, which in the years past it hasn't been. Remember last year it was uh, LeBron. Even in the finals, it was LeBron versus an undermanned Boston, Boston team, team yeah. and both teams didn't play well, and it was weird. But in this case, and and any team that comes out of the East, lo- looking how maybe the Warriors have played and us. Uh, some of these other teams in the West, they would have a legitimate chance to win the title. No, absolutely they would. Um, okay, well, let's slide over to the West. Uh, we're already running way behind here. Um, just love talking NBA. So Golden State and the Clippers, I was looking for the Clippers to give them a little bit more. They haven't been awful, but you can see why Golden State's the, the, you know, the odds-on favorite to win. Well, my, the thing about Golden State, that what hurt them was in the game two, uh, they were up 31 points, and they blew the lead, and they were Crazy. 16 points with seven minutes to go at home. Um, and Cousins, DeMarcus Cousins pulled his thigh or tore his thigh muscle and he's going to be our quadriceps. I'm not sure, but they, he's going to be out for the rest of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, they made a sneaky move with like, like three weeks to go in the season. Andrew Bogut was a superstar in Australia. Now he used to play on the team. So mm-hmm. he's used to playing on that team. He went to Australia for the last couple of years, was playing there. They called up and said, we want to join the team. Well, he'd be back up to Cousins. But now Cousins is hurt. You bring Bogut in the game. Now remember, Bogut is the one who they played with and won titles with. So the point is he's perfect for that system. And he's looked great. He's averaged 10 rebounds a game since Cousins went out. But the key, Kevin Durant, Whatever there is a problem in this, I mean, his shooting, he's so, he's so good. good. He's, I'm saying this again, he's underrated. He has just played phenomenal. He had 33 and 38 points the last two games. He shot 14 for 23, 12 for 21. From the foul line, he's 28 and a 30. He doesn't even miss for the foul. He, does, he doesn't miss anything. I like what the Warriors are doing also. 
as a team that invented the three-point shooting, the master three-point shots, they all shoot twos also. I've seen plays where Curry will take a 15-foot shot, Durant will shoot, take a 15-foot shot. Like, if it's there, they take it. These other teams, I think, are so obsessed with shooting threes where they give up the easy two, which they can You're take. Right. And I really like how well they're playing. They, they really get Even on a day like on Sunday when Curry was three for 14, one for nine from threes, only 12 points, they still were able to do well. And the weird thing about how the Warriors are playing, they're even rebounding well. 49-33 re- rebounding advantage against the Clippers. Now, the Clippers aren't that good. They're shocking they're even there. But uh, the Warriors look like they are definitely ra- – that one game is such an aberration, but they're rounding in the form in terms of what they do. And, and to give credit for the Clippers, uh, Shane Gilgers alexander their young point guard, is really an emerging star. And, and there's a thought that Leonard is going to come there. Other superstars might come to the Clippers. This is shocking they're even in the playoffs over yeah. some of the other teams like Sacramento and Minnesota. So the Clippers are going to – on Wednesday night, they'll be out. They'll lose. It's three-one. They're going to lose at Golden State, but they should be proud for. for they had a great year. Uh, here's a little um, uh, news flash for you, Ira. James Harden's really good at basketball, and Houston is just rolling Utah. I, there's I, on ESPN. There's um, an interesting thing about how Utah is trying to play with him on defense, and they are because Harden is a left is a lefty. They're actually Force guarding him, him to, to his yeah. left, mm-hmm. and because he's stepping back and shooting three, so they're taking that away from him. They're literally saying drive the basket, and even and he's so fast and he's such a good dribbler that he beats his defender all the time, whoever it is. And then they're actually that defender then is not chasing Harden. He's actually running out to someone else. So the point is, let him beat me, let him drive, and all they're doing is we're hoping Harden shoots a five foot little jumper which he can make too so it's really it's really hard but it's it's there it's an interesting defense and Houston blew out Utah the first two games 32 by 32 and 20 but in game three it was a classic and Harden played bad I mean he was at one point in the game 0 for 15 he ended up the game 3 for 20 2 for 13 from 3 so their defense started Utah's defense was starting to work but they still ended up losing the game in Utah um, and they have now the fourth game coming tonight is the is the uh, fourth game uh, uh, Donovan Mitchell scored 34 points but for the series is only shooting 31%. I mean, you look at Utah and they they played great last year and they they had a good year this year in terms of being the uh, fifth seed, but they're just they're just missing it. I mean, it's Houston is hitting on all cylinders. Uh, Tucker has fit in in the system well. Um, you have Harden, you have Capella, uh, that w- and Chris Paul staying healthy. As long as Paul stays healthy, and they, they have their short in their bench too. But they're, Houston up 3-0, they're set. And now you're going to have Golden State Houston in the next round. Like I'm saying is that you're going to have th- three really good semifinal matchups. Um, yeah, you know, you certainly are. Um Ira, right here on the show, you said that Denver's the softest two seed in the history of the NBA. Speaking of twos, they're they're knotted up with San Antonio and in the versus the seven seed. Well, San Antonio, this series could have almost been over. The Spurs were up two one at home and they lost the last game. So that's this is the one series is two two. They were also up one zero in Denver and leading Denver by nineteen points and blew the lead. And, and uh, uh, Jamal Murray for Denver scored in the fourth quarter nineteen points. It's actually not that game in terms of game two. It's just been a it's been a weird series. And Jokic, the star for uh, for Denver, struggled in the first couple games, but now is playing better. But it's 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 a battle. It's not the sexiest type of series, but it's two two. And I still think the winner of the series then loses to either. A Probably Portland. So there, it's. A, I still think San Antonio wins the series and is able to take out Denver. But it, it's the. It'll be the only series that from like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's going to be the only series that could possibly go six or seven games. <laughs> this is true. Um, to me. Brooklyn and the 76ers, that was my favorite series to watch. But I think number two has to be um, Portland versus OKC. And it's been a, a soap opera, of course, because Russell Westbrook's involved, but Portland's uh, looking good. Well, Russell Westbrook won 10 series with uh, Kevin Durant. He's won now zero without him. <laughs> and Westbrook is now, he's a big talker. He's had triple doubles the last three years. He is uh, flashy. He's, uh, he wants to be the MVP every year. But he's got to start winning these series. And he brought in Paul George, and George is injured. And in Portland, uh, Damian Lillard, everyone's overlooking him. He looks good. And and C.J. McCollum, everyone's overlooking him. And this is and last year Portland was swept by New Orleans as the third seed. And everyone said they're going to trade Lillard, they're going to trade C.J. McCollum, but they kept everybody back. They came back. Then they lose their center Nurchik into an injury, and they're still hanging in there. And they come in the playoffs. But boy, McCollum, twenty six points a game, averaging four threes a game, shooting at 50 percent. Lillard, twenty nine points a game, four threes a game, shooting at fifty three fifty percent. I mean, they are out playing and last night it was a tight game uh it, it was two it was two one in uh in, in the series in oklahoma city so it should have been two two and if oklahoma city won and that third quarter 
Portland just took it. Damian Lillard was amazing. I mean, draining the threes, playing great defense, and Westbrook was terrible. He was 5-for-21 last night. He was 5-for-20 in Game 2. He had one point in the second half and no field goals. And Paul George, the other superstar, was struggling too with an injured shoulder. Um, and it's weird because Westbrook's not doing the interviews after the game. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to talk to certain reporters. I mean, this is one of those things. That's what I love about the NBA playoffs. This is what exposing these people that during the regular season, it's sort of like, oh, it's so nice how you play, what stats you put up. But really, when it comes down to it, if Russell Westbrook wants to be known as an all-time great, he's got to start winning these series. He's got to play better. And he can't keep blaming everyone else. He's the one with the ball all the yeah. time. He can't shoot 5 for 20 and 5 for 21. <laughs> and it's literally, he's coming down in Portland saying, shoot the ball. They're, they're letting him. They're not even covering him. You're going to be an all-time great, and, and, and the other team's just letting you shoot the ball? Damian Lillard looks like the far better player, you know, looking at at these games. 724, Iron Sports, 95.9, True Oldies Channel, just about five minutes away from legendary author and sports writer John Feinstein joining us. NHL playoffs is uh, in full swing. I love the NHL playoffs, but, and I said it on this show, Ira, I thought that the Tampa Bay Lightning were the best team that I'd seen maybe my entire life. This regular season, they were phenomenal, and they got destroyed by Columbus. I, I couldn't believe it. Well, I watched um, the fourth game in Columbus. And first of all, you're trying to watch it on TV. You couldn't even see it because all the fans stood the entire time. So you're trying to look around the TV. Those fans were crazy during that game. And Tampa Bay at the end uh, was just, they, they were down 4-3. And, and they were like holding on. They pulled the goaltender, I thought, with like three minutes to go. We're like, hey, we have to score. And, and Columbus then was able to score uh, four, three other goals. They won 7-3. But it was just so exciting at the end of the game where Tampa Bay is like, oh, my gosh. They almost like the, the comparison would be to when Mike Tyson was being beat by Buster Douglas. Crazy. And they were just like throwing. Like they were trying to trying to win. They were doing everything they possibly can. They hadn't lost. I mean, they had the best record in the history, second best record in the history of the mm-hmm. NHL. And they now been swept in a series 4-0 to a team that they were heavily, heavily favored in. This would be it be it is worse than if Golden State got swept by the not beat by the Clippers swept like that's this is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in sports a little bit less crazy to me not that I thought Pittsburgh was going to lose the series to the Islanders I didn't think they'd lose the way they did and this is not the you know the Pittsburgh Penguins team of six seven years ago that was just ridiculous you know in all aspects even four years ago they're just not the same team. And it's tough when you have two superstars on a hockey team because they got to get paid. And it's hard to fill out the rest of the of the lines. And that's what's happened to Pittsburgh over the years. But I didn't think the Islanders were going to sweep them. And the Islanders look like a team to be reckoned with. Well, the Islanders had won the first two games at home. Then they came back and won game three in Pittsburgh. I and lost then, my shirt betting on that game. Like, there's <laughs> game, no way Pittsburgh goes back and loses. And then home. game four, it, it, again, it, it was just it was amazing in terms of they were able. It was two one, uh, and Pittsburgh's like hanging in there. Crosby, Sidney Crosby, the superstar for the Penguins, had a, a shot that I he was open. The, the goalie wasn't around it, and it hit the. I mean, he doesn't. He could make that. 10 out of 10 times mm. and he missed that shot and hit the goalpost um, but could you imagine the Penguins had 6 goals in 4 games I mean this is one of the highest scoring teams with all these superstar players yeah. and they scored 6 times it's not like the Islanders were great rating goal they weren't just getting chances they were playing terrible um and it was like, but it was fun at, at the end of the game when it was two one. It was about forty five seconds to go, and there was a face off, and and they were playing with the extra man because they pulled their goalie. And uh, the Islander won. Uh, Josh Bailey won the face off, and just on the face off, hit it the entire way down to the net, and that was like the end for the Penguins. Nail in the coffin. <laughs> but it's like the Penguins and the Pittsburgh fans are mad. I mean, they really like look at Pittsburgh disappointment with the Steelers this year, not even make the playoffs. The Penguins, who are extremely popular, I just don't think people realize how popular they are in Pittsburgh, and now for them to be not. Down the first the playoffs in the first round. It's not a. I mean, without the Pirates doing well, this is not a happy time in Pittsburgh. No, I, I believe you. You said like the you know Pittsburgh uh, Penguins tickets go for more than NFL tickets, and you get forty games at home, not eight. So it's crazy to think about how much that city loves their team. Same thing with Tampa. Tampa's all in on the Lightning, not so much the Bucks, and we know that they don't draw for the Rays. So it, it, really disappointing for two of the the better hockey cities in the country. Um, maybe two of the best hockey cities in the world is Boston and Toronto. This has been the best series so far, and I kind of thought it was going to be. There's so much talent here on both sides of the ice eye. Yeah, I mean, Game 7 Tuesday night, and that's what's so exciting when you play in hockey. I mean, the Game 7s where they're just, I mean, it is Game 7 in, in hockey, Game 7 in basketball, and the one thing is that when you watch these series, these teams, like you saw with Dudley causing trouble with Embiid, and when you see Patrick Beverly in the Clippers series in terms of getting under Durant's skin, 
um, you're seeing that these teams, it's one thing to play a team one night, play another team, but when you play them seven games, you start to see uh, tendencies and understand it. And that's what you're seeing in the Oklahoma City series. I think Portland now has figured out how to beat Westbrook. And it's like, you see him one game and he's like, oh my gosh, he's so fast, he's so great. But when you start playing him and see him again and again, now you're used to how he's playing and that's how they're able to beat. And that's what's going to be great about these, uh, the game seven in Toronto, Boston and game seven in San Jose, Vegas. Yeah, this one's going to be a really good one. Um, San Jose was a very good team this year. You know, Vegas obviously made it to the Stanley Cup Finals last year. They took a little step back this year, but this will be an interesting series to see what happens. San Jose's got, you know, two of the best defensemen on the planet playing together. And I can't see them losing this game, but crazier things have happened. Um, Another series you'd really need to keep your eyes on is Nashville and Dallas. Nashville is just quietly one of the most consistent hockey teams in the league. I mean, these guys are in the conference finals every year, and they they could potentially get ousted um, after winning their division by Dallas. So that's one to keep your eye on. And Washington, Carolina, the Capitals always seem to scrap with these you know teams in the early rounds. I'm not going to be shocked if Carolina wins one more, but I can't see Washington losing this this series, you know, altogether. Well, so I think Washington's happy that Pittsburgh's out now because they had so oh, many, they how many years. And having... Tampa's out. Yeah. There's not they don't have anything to worry about. It's really going to be who comes out of the Boston and Toronto series. Toronto's extremely skilled. I don't think they want to see either of them, but the Bruins are more physical than them, and Toronto's more skilled than them. In and also the same thing like in the NCAA's when you see a team have a huge upset like Columbus did, um, the chance of them being up for the next series. Like they're happy they just won that series. That mm-hmm. was at their Stanley Cup almost, and it's hard to get ready then to play. So they're going to have that advantage. But yeah, you know, Washington, this is this is going nicely for them and have the teams that yeah. when your two two top teams that are that in com- competition are out uh, is very good for them. Columbus's goalie Sergei Bobrovsky. You know they always talk about how a hot goalie can win you a Stanley Cup, and for Bobrovsky to shut down the most prolific offensive team of all time. That's a good sign, you know, for Columbus. I'd be really happy if I was Tortorella and Columbus fan going forward. All right, let's bring in John Feinstein here onto Ira on Sports. Great interview with him earlier today. Let's see what John had to say. 95.9, the True Oldies channel. It's Ira on Sports. With us right now, John Feinstein, uh, legendary sports writer and author, just uh, came out with the book The Prodigy. We'll talk a lot about that. But uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you've spent some time in our studios here in uh, South Florida when you're uh, covering the Honda Classic. I have, Ira. Uh, in in the past, uh, you guys have been gracious enough to allow me to come in and record my CBS Sports Minutes uh, early each morning when I've been down there in the past for the Honda, as you mentioned. So the book, you came out with a book called The Prodigy, which is at the bookstores now. It's a little bit different than some of the books you've done in the past in terms it's a fiction book, but it, it uses characters like Tiger Woods and Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy in it. So it's a, it's a different type of book, but it's absolutely amazing. What was your inspiration in terms of writing this book? Well, I, I've, I started writing fiction, gosh, it's probably 13 or 14 years ago now, Ira, and um, it was actually, my wife was the one who suggested it. She, she said that uh, there's not that much uh, sports fiction uh, for kids in the you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old age group, and why not take a shot at, at writing something just for fun? And I have always believed as a reader that the best fiction reads as if it could, could be true. Um, and so I, I thought, well, what do you know the most about? Well, the, the first answer that came to mind was the Final Four, since at that point I'd covered it about 30 times. So I wrote a book called Last Shot that was set at the Final Four. Uh, it, was, it was a mystery where two teenage kids get to go to the Final Four because uh, they win a writing contest, one that actually does exist, and they stumble into this plot to fix the national championship game. And the book was really well received. It won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Mystery Writing in the Young Adult category. And, and that sort of set me off on a course to continue writing these books. And The Prodigy is my first crack at golf fiction. Uh, I've covered golf for years. Uh, I just finished covering my 29th Masters. Um, so when I wanted to write uh, a golf book, uh, I wanted to set it at, a, at some, a place I was familiar with, like the Final Four, and I'm certainly familiar with the Masters and Augusta National. Um, so as you pointed out, I, I created this plot where a 17-year-old kid, the, the prodigy, has a chance to win the Masters. It's not that far-fetched. Tiger Woods won the Masters by 12 shots when he was 21. Sergio Garcia finished 24th when he was 19. Uh, so it's not that crazy. Justin Rose finished 4th in the British Open when he was 17. Uh, and as you point out, I throughout the book weave in real, real people, 
uh, into the plot, golfers, people in the golf world. I guess you'd call it faction because many of the people are real. Many of the fictional characters are based on real people, uh, but the story itself is purely fictional. And one of the stars of the, of the book is Keith Foreman, who is the writer who's covering uh, Frank Baker, who is the 17-year-old star. And you're, you probably have a lot of in common with Keith in terms of trying to cover the story, but at the same time becoming part of the story and having the, the difficulty and being involved in that. Talk about how you came through in that character, the Keith Foreman character, which was, was probably it was almost told through his eyes, the, the book. Right. Half the book is told through his eyes, I guess, and the other half through the eyes of Frank Baker, uh, the, the prodigy, as he said. Um, I, one thing I don't have in common with Keith Foreman is that he was a very good golfer. Uh, he was good enough to play in college, played mini tours, went to Q school, uh, never made it to the tour, and that's why he turned to writing. I was never anywhere near that good. But uh, he, like me, he's a reporter. Uh, like me, he has a lot of relationships uh, with athletes. And when you do what I do, and do it for as long as I have. You do develop relationships with people, and you develop friendships with people. And, and the old saying in reporting is you should not become friends with your sources. But it's impossible, Ira, for that not to happen at times. What you have to do, I think, is be aware of that, that, that we all have biases. There are going to be people we like. There are going to be people we don't like. The key is to be fair to all of them, whether we like them or not. And Keith is fighting this battle throughout the book where, on the one hand, he's just trying to be a reporter and follow what Frank Baker is doing and follow what's going on in the Masters and follow the storyline involving uh, Keith's uh, excuse me, uh, Frank's father and the agent who are trying to turn him into a human ATM machine at the age of 17. And on the other hand, he has very genuine affection uh, for, the, for, for Frank, who's a, a really nice young kid who just happens to have a special talent to play golf. Yeah, one interesting aspect of the book is that, and we see it today with the college basketball scandals, is the fact that you have an overbearing parent, and at the same time you have all these people that want to make money off this, quote, amateur athlete, and the amateur athlete who just wants to play the sports is really not getting a cut of the money, not getting anything, but other people are cutting deals around him. Um, talk about in terms of you know the pressure that that like athletes today deal with in terms of just they have too many people other people that are trying to to make money off them they just want to play the game and develop themselves and it's just it's just, it's a it's a constant pressure on them yeah and, and this is something that's gone on for years I mean it's not anything new I mean Earl Woods uh, the, part of the scenario in the book is that uh, Frank Baker's father has actually been hired by a, a fictional agent, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, because the fictional agent is trying to recruit uh, Frank to, to be one of his clients, and so he hires him, quote-unquote, as a junior talent scout because he can't really, he can't pay the kid directly while he's still an amateur. Well, that happened with Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods was in high school and when he was at Stanford, Earl Woods was on the payroll for IMG as a, quote, junior talent scout. Well, you can say that he did a hell of a job because he delivered the greatest junior in history. Um, but this goes on all the time where uh, parents do want to make money off of their kids. I'm not saying all parents, but we see plenty of examples of it. I also bring up the Cam Newton story. Uh, when Cam Newton was at Auburn, it came out that his father had basically put him up for bid when he was in junior college. Uh, and he ended up going to Auburn, and the NCAA did not want to take him off the field when he was about to win the Heisman Trophy. So that they more or less created a rule on the fly which said, well, if the athlete didn't know that someone was soliciting money on their behalf, then you don't, you, they can't be suspended or can't you know, be, be thrown, off, uh, thrown off the team, whatever it might be. And that's what's going on with Frank Baker. He has no idea what's going on, uh, what his father's doing and, 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 and what the agent is doing. And the only way he finds out eventually is through Keith Foreman, the reporter, who digs this out and tries to protect Frank uh, from his own father. And unfortunately, in real life, Ira, as you know, frequently young athletes have to be protected from their parents. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting is that the parents, 
And they also don't like it. The aspect of the book is that when uh, people are getting close, like Keith Foreman's getting close to Frank, that the parents like, no, I don't want an outsider. I'll control who you talk to. I'll control who's who gives you information. And these are now you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old kids. They can really talk to whoever they want to. But it's almost the parents are controlling that inner circle, and not letting anyone else get in the inner circle. And that's the difficulty for these kids, because they they want to get more information. They're knowledgeable. They're smart. They want to learn about everything. Sure, they do. Sure, they do. You're absolutely right. And I'll give you a real-life example that, that, that isn't like the book. The book is, is obviously, as I said, fictional. <coughs> but uh, early in Tiger Woods' career, he, he and I had a long sit-down dinner, uh, and, and we talked about a number of things, uh, among them his father, who I had been very critical of publicly uh, right from the start. I, I wrote very early on that I believe that Tiger Woods, if he became the superstar people thought he might become, would do so in spite of his father, not because of his father. I saw Earl Woods as a typical pushy stage parent who saw his son as a way to, to get rich, and that is in fact what happened, as we all know. Um, and I thought Tiger and I had forged not a close relationship, but at least a relationship where we could talk. Um, and w- I was working on my second uh, golf book at the time, The Majors, and I asked Tiger about sitting down at the end of that year to talk about his play in, during that year in the four major championships, and he said, sure, let's do it in Atlanta at the Tour Championship. Uh, and a couple weeks, few weeks before uh, we were supposed to talk, Tiger uh, sought me out and said, look, I, I hate to break a commitment. I, I, I gave you my word I would do this, but I can't do the interview with you. And I said, oh, okay, how come? And he said, I can't get past the things that you, you said about my father. And I said, I thought we talked all that out when we had dinner in San Diego, which we had. And he said, I thought we had to. And what I learned later, basically, was that when Earl Woods found out that Tiger Woods was talking to me, um, and again, it's not like we were close or anything, just talking to me, he basically said, you will not talk to him. And Tiger, was, as you know, has always been very loyal to his father, so, and I don't blame anybody for being loyal to their father, um, he basically said, I can't talk to you. And it was because his father didn't want me, or anybody else, by the way, I don't think, in Tiger's life, and, or in, more importantly, in Tiger's ear in any way, shape, or form. So what happens in the book with Keith Foreman and Frank Baker, again, it's, it's, it's fictional, but it's based in re- on reality. <laughs> and then the, another aspect of the book um, we're talking to John Feinstein, the noted author who has the book The Prodigy that came out. This is Iron Sports in 95.9, 106.9, West Palm Beach. Um, you talk a lot about golf etiquette in this book, and, and I don't want to give away the ending or whatever in the middle of the book, but it's it's a very big part of the book is the right, etiquette of golf. Right, it's a surprise ending. And, and yes, we're not going to do the surprise ending, but in the middle of it, because it's he's playing in the U.S. Amateurs, and it's which is match play, which is exciting to golf, especially at the amateur level. And and you're but talk about where you think golf is today, where where that maybe some of the etiquette is gone, where they're actually, but it's not just golf; it's all sports, where it seems to be that there isn't this respect for the game respect for your fellow competitor, it's, there is no etiquette anymore. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I think uh, golf, perhaps more than any other sport, um, there, there is still some sportsmanship left. Uh, golf is the one sport, remember, where there aren't officials there calling fouls uh, or, or you know, calling balls and strikes, whatever it might be. Basically, you're supposed to police yourself. If you have any doubt about something, you're supposed to call in a rules official and say, this is what happened. What do I do? Do I penalize myself? Do I not? Am I allowed to drop? Am I not? Uh, and I think more, most of the time golfers do that. Now there have been incidents. There have been incidents where players have been accused of cheating. There, have been, there was a, a very ugly incident years ago um, where Greg Norman uh, at, at, at Firestone at, at Akron in the old Bridgestone uh, Classic, or back then it was called the World Series of Golf, uh, believed that Mark McCumber, a very good player and a very good guy, by the way, uh, was improving his lie in the rough during the course of the round. They were playing together in the first round, and at the end of the round, he refused to sign McCumber's scorecard. And Tim Fincham, the commissioner, stepped in and signed the, the scorecard in place of Greg Norman. And, and I, I bring that up not to bring up Greg Norman or Mark McCumber, but there have been other incidents like that where guys didn't want to sign someone else's scorecard, where they thought perhaps something had happened. There was an incident with Tiger Woods, I'm going to say it's five years ago now, um, where uh, he, was, 
caught on camera trying to remove a twig uh, in Chicago during a, a playoff event, and it appeared that the ball moved, and Tiger Woods did not call the penalty on himself. And, and uh, Slugger White, who was the rules official in charge, called him in after the round, showed him the video, and said, Tiger, I think your ball moved. And Tiger Woods said, no, it didn't move. It just oscillated. And Slugger White told him he had to add two shots to his score because he believed the ball moved and he had final say. And Tiger Woods was furious um, that he was, he was ordered to do this. So there are moments where the etiquette of the game uh, isn't as uh, valued, shall we say, as, as it was maybe in past years. I mean, we know stories about players calling penalties on themselves uh, when nobody else saw what happened. You know, where a guy walks out of the woods and says, my ball moved when I was addressing it. In fact, at the Masters, three years ago, when Tom Watson was playing in his last Masters, and he was fighting to make the cut, and he was on the seventh hole on Friday, and he stepped up to a putt and stepped back and said to his playing partners, my ball just moved. I have to call a penalty on myself. And they, nobody saw it. And I asked Tom about it later, and I, and I said, you know, were you sure the ball moved? And he said, John, if I wasn't sure the ball moved, I wouldn't have called the penalty. I mean, he was a little annoyed with me for asking the question. But to, to, I think to most golfers, the etiquette of the game and the rules of the game are very important, but there are always exceptions in a, in, to, to any rule. And I guess, I mean, your book, The Prodigy, is based upon the last half of the book about the Masters, and the writing is tremendous, how you weave in Spieth and Justin Thomas and, and McElroy, just tremendous. It is really it is extremely well-written and very, Thank very you. interesting. But the point is, you were at the Masters, um, Tiger wins it, and, and, and for someone who's been at so many Masters as you've been, you said 29, what, uh, just talk about the experience with Tiger winning that. Well, uh, it, it was, of course, very dramatic uh, because it was, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time. All due respect to Jack Nicklaus, I think when Tiger was at his dominant best from 1997 to 2008, he did things that no one, including Nicklaus, has ever done. Uh, and many people thought he was, he was finished. Uh, I was asked constantly, is Tiger Woods finished during the period while, when he was dealing with all the injuries, plus all he'd done to mess up his personal life. Um, uh, and my answer was, if it was anybody but Tiger Woods, I would say, yes, he's done. But you never count out the elite of the elite. And I pointed out Jack Nicklaus in 1986 uh, after a six-year drought, winning one more Masters. And this is a similar type of comeback. Jack was not because of injuries or personal problems. He just hadn't played well for a long time. And Tiger's a little younger than Jack was. Jack was 46. Tiger's 43. Uh, but it was certainly quite something to watch. He had to ha catch some breaks. Francesco Molinari finding the water twice on the back nine. It seemed like everybody who was in contention made a terrible mistake coming down the stretch. And the one guy who didn't was Tiger. And that's why he ended up with, with the victory. And I I'll say this, Ira. I admire Tiger Woods greatly as a golfer. I don't admire him greatly as a person. Uh, I, you know, I I've seen him treat people badly. Not me. Not me, but others. Uh, we know what he did to his wife and to his two children. Uh, and I, I understand the fascination with him. I understand admiring him. What I don't understand, and, and I, I argue this with people all the time, is the adulation, is the fact that people adore him, and, and fans do adore him, and so do many in the media. Um, and I understand adoring the talent. I don't quite understand adoring the man. Have you noticed a change since he's come back from the injuries, though? Because I, I follow golf a lot. I mean, I see the interaction. I walk with him, see on the course, and I, I have seen just this. You know, he smiles a lot more. He's more engaging. Uh, yep. The cat. He signs more autographs. He's less disdainful of the print media uh, than he used to be. I don't know that people change <laughs> at that age. You know what they say about our eighty or ninety percent of our personalities being formed by the time we're two years old. Uh, but I think you can evolve. I think you can learn uh, from mistakes. I hope I do, because I make so many of them. Um, and I, I think Tiger has been humbled. Um, I think he appreciates success more now, because he doesn't take it for granted. In the old days, when he won those first 14 majors, he expected to win every time he stepped on the first tee. Uh, you remember the old second-place sucks line. Um, now he appreciates the fact that he can play it all. Uh, that he can play this well again, I think it brings him a kind of joy that he never had in the past. Uh, I think that um, he has e evolved. He does understand 
that maybe he owes the public more than what he gave the public in the past. So yes, I think he, he's improved in that sense, uh, and, and I think we should give him credit for that. Um, that being said, it's, it's hard for me to completely forget some of the things he's done in the past. That doesn't mean, you know, Red Auerbach, the great uh, basketball coach who I wrote a book on years ago, um, always said, I, 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 I'm always willing to forgive, but I never forget. And I, I think I'm like that. I, I don't know Tiger well, but I, I, I forgive him for the mistakes he's made, but I can't forget them. In your book, The Prodigy, well, just one final question is that you had this quote from the Palester. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, so I'm familiar with the Palester and all the history. Right. And, and the quote was, to win the game is great, to play the game is greater, but to love the game is the greatest of them all. I just, I've all, I love that quote. I think that's I great. think it's just, to me, it, it sums up what sports is at its best. And uh, I go to, my wife has always said, you'll appreciate this as a Penn grad, that if I ever disappeared for some reason, she would send the police to the palestra. <laughs> she would assume that's where I went. Because uh, I love going to games there so much. And every single time I go to a game at the palestra, uh, I walk in the front lobby, I turn to my right, I go to where the plaque is in the lobby, and I touch the plaque. And I just stand there and re- read it again for the nine millionth time before I walk down to the floor. It, it, to me, uh, that's why I had Jordan Spieth say it. And I could realistically put the words in his mouth because his brother played at Brown, meaning that he played in the palestra every year during his college career. And, uh, and I just I think it, it's, the, it's the coolest quote in sports to me. And there are a lot of cool quotes, but that's the one I love the most. Well, I went, when I was at Penn, I was a manager on the basketball team. So I went to every practice and every game for four years there. Plus, when I was there, of course, every Big Five team played there. So it was just right. awesome. From November to February or March, I was able to go every day to the Plestra and just sit there for practice. And we'd show up at practice at 6 a.m. sometimes. And, you know, Temple would be leaving the practice. Like they had started at 4 a.m. Yeah, because John Chaney always started. Started at five in the morning, right? <laughs> right. So, right. No, but... no, the, again, I, people always ask me, uh, what are the best buildings in, in college basketball? And I, uh, Allen Fieldhouse at Kansas is third, Cameron Indoor Stadium at Duke is second, and I think the Palestra is number one without any question. Well, anyway, thank you very much for your time, John. You have this book, The Prodigy. It is a great book. It's a, a young adult book, but I suggest that everyone read it. I mean, everyone who loves sports, it's it's a perfect book. And uh, thanks for coming on Ira on Sports. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ira. I appreciate it a lot. Great interview with um, John Feinstein. So the Palestra is definitely on my bucket list now after you, you know, swearing for it for years. Now you got old John Feinstein backing you up on that. The Palestra, I think, should be on everyone's bucket list. It's Iron Sports 750. I'm Mike Balsamo. This is the True Oldies channel. I love the draft. I said it earlier. It's coming up on Thursday, the first round. Ira, this has been, you know, talked about throughout the media as not a sexy draft. And I, I, I can agree with that. There's no superstar quarterback that everyone's looking at. Uh, you know, there's no the next Andrew Luck. It's not big on skill position players, but they're saying it's one of the deepest drafts ever, and I really think it is, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Being a Giants fan and us having a thousand needs and a bunch of picks at the top, I'm really happy. Um, so let's talk about how you think the draft is going to go. It's been pretty much the most talked about thing all offseason. What is Arizona going to do at the top? Are they going to take a quarterback after trading up for a quarterback last year? We're about to find out. Well, they picked Josh Rosen with the 10th pick last year. He had an so-so year, probably the worst of any of the rookie of the yes, rookie the contracts, rookie uh, quarterbacks. But they bring a court coach, and Cliff Kingsbury was fired from Texas Tech. Somehow, surprisingly, he was hired at Arizona. But he, Kyler Murray, plays in that type of system. Yeah. And Kyler Murray, who was supposed to be playing baseball now, he was he signed a contract with the Oakland A's and was going to be playing baseball, but has decided from a, to go play college to play pro football and enter and I, I looked at draft boards from last year Kyler Murray was like if they said if he, if he declares pro he's a fifth round pick or sixth round pick mm-hmm. and now he's the number one player on the draft um, it's sort of a reach I don't think other teams would pick Kyler Murray one but I think it fits with Cliff Kingsbury and what he wants and clearly if they pick Kyler Murray one then that opens up and, and the question with Kyler is he's five how you know, five nine he's gonna be one of the shortest quarterbacks one of the comments is that Russell Wilson should uh, Kyler Murray should give some money to Russell Wilson because he proved yeah. that a shorter quarterback can be successful in the Russell's NFL. Russell's still over six foot. And he, yeah, he's taught, he'll be the shortest of, uh, of, of him. Since of, Doug Flutie, I believe. Uh, of even Drew, of Drew Brees. He's much shorter than Drew Brees. And he's not as, he's not as strong, as big as, as Drew Brees is, or Russell Wilson is. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Josh Rosen.
Rosen because people there's some teams that think Josh Rosen still was in a bad situation in Arizona and you're hearing him that team had no offensive line or weapons anywhere so you're saying maybe can Josh Rosen go to New England Maybe Josh Rosen needs a year or a couple of years looking at Tom Brady or he goes to the Giants or some other team. So it's if they draft Murray, they're not going to keep Murray and Rosen. There's no way they're going to keep two young quarterbacks, especially if they're drafting one at one. And they don't want the pressure. They, they don't want to answer the questions. They want to turn this team over to Kyler Murray. So it'll be this... You know, I love about the draft is that you have to watch the draft early because the first picks are the most exciting. Like a sports There's event, be trades. yeah. But the sports events, you sort of say, "Well, I could show up in the fourth quarter." But in the draft, the most exciting part is that first. You got to sit down when the draft starts to get into it and, and to see what happens. But uh, it'll be exciting. I mean, what 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 the what Arizona does. But I really think when push comes to shove, they're going to draft. And we've seen trades and all these things, but I don't think they're going to gamble. They're going to lose him. I think they he's their quarterback. They want him. Kingsbury's their coach. And and they want to have an up-tempo, exciting offense. They have David Johnson running back. They still have Larry Fitzgerald. They have some other good wide receivers. I think they, they're going to draft Murray. I have been in that camp, too, all you know, all offseason. I'm changing now. I, I think they're going to go a different direction. I just, I just have a feeling, and, and I, I kind of do want them to take Kyler Murray. It's going to help the Giants get you know, a better player sooner. But uh, for some reason, I'm against it. I do think the next three players are all generational talents. Nick Bosa is going to be a superstar. Josh Allen, too. And I love Quinn and Williams' uh, defensive tackle from Alabama. And that's pretty much how most draft boards are going. Yeah, that's for the 49ers, Jets, and Raiders. It's so funny. At the top... 15 players that people were projecting in the draft, I've seen 12 of them play in person, which is not not like I'm going a scout and looking. It's just I see <laughs> so much. Combine, yeah. I see so much college football that I've seen them in play in the games. Um, Boza at Ohio State was weird because he, he got hurt at the beginning of the last year and then sat out. Uh, Josh Allen, I saw him when Kentucky played Penn State last year in the bowl game at the Citrus Bowl, and I, I thought he was he was uh, he was okay. I don't think he was that great, but I, I, I think that I think Bosa, but, but Quinton Williams at Alabama is definitely, I mean, he is someone who has uh, just been dominant last year. Anyone who watched any of Bama's games, and of course they played such tough competition and uh, as a defensive lineman, but as you, this, the, the whole draft is really on defense. I mean, people, as much as the pro game has become offense, 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 until you turn the Super Bowl, and it was just defense, but the point is that if you don't have, these teams have the feeling, if you don't have a pass rusher, you're just going to get killed. You have to have these big pass rushers that are going to get to the quarterback. How funny is it that, you know, things have changed even from when I was a kid, Ira, and now you'll have teams that have two starting good pass rushers drafting a young pass. It's just next man in. We need to be getting to the quarterback. How funny that's changed. Interesting point you brought up, too, about how it's a defensive draft. The two biggest offensive stars that could be tight ends, both drafted out of Ohio in the first round uh, between TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, who look like they're both going to be, you know, potentially first rounders. Kind of crazy how this all panned out. So continue from there. Tampa's going to be up number five. Well, they, people have been having them having Devin White from LSU, another inside linebacker. Um, I like him. And, and I think at Tampa, again, it's just that they, they had a terrible defense last year. Um, and I think with the... I I, really, I think that I think he'd fit in well uh, with that team and 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 I think that it just some of these teams have so many holes that you're like well how can one person on defense make a difference now on offense one like a Baker Mayfield can make a difference on mm-hmm. offense but I think it's just an accumulation of talent and you feel like you have to keep adding these these defensive players that are superstars and you know eventually you're going to have a team like Cleveland which has you know, assembled such a good defense but just by drafting well the last mm-hmm. couple of years you know what it's funny what you said is true I mean with the exception of really the 49ers and the Jets every team that's drafted so far including my new york giants have holes everywhere so what do you think the giants do at six i i put haskins from ohio state i've saw i saw in haskins play last year i'm not so i've in person i just don't i'm not sold on him i i don't think there's any quarterbacks in these draft in this draft that really should be a number one in in the first round um you see daniel jones of duke i i, I just I just don't think Haskins is that. I think Haskins is a backup quarterback. I mean, Cardell Jones, he reminds me of Cardell Jones, who played for Ohio State. Was we back, had to Google before. Yeah, we had to Google. He's <laughs> backup for the Chargers. I mean, he was, and I just, I, 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 is inaccurate. He's inaccurate on a lot of long passes. He got, his numbers are great because Ohio State would have these superstars all, and, you know, para, para, they have so many great wide receivers and running backs that they would just come out of the backfield and he'd have so many places he could go. And a lot of his yardage was yards after the catch, where he just dumped the ball off and people would run the ball 60 yards uh whenever he had to make a good pass downfield i didn't see him make it and i think and that's one reason why ohio state had some troubles this year I, i'm just not sold on him uh being being uh, but the giants and I, the giants at first said they were gonna draft him but now i don't think that now they say they're gonna go defense unless it's a smoke screen but if he doesn't go to the giants at six it's a question where he's gonna go 
And that's one of the things to me, interesting you bring that up, there's not that many other teams that are looking for quarterbacks. So, you know, with the exception of the Redskins and the Dolphins, if they're not sold on him, the Giants could get him in the second round. Not saying that he's going to fall that far, but there's not that many teams in the market for quarterbacks. I think they'd be crazy to take Haskins at six, no matter how much I I like or dislike him. I agree with everything you said, though, and I I hope— that they pass on Haskins at six and take a stud on defense because that's what they need. All right, Ira, so go on from there. Uh, we're running out of time already, but um, what do you think is going to happen for the rest of the draft? Well, I, just just to cool th- some names, uh, Monte Sweat at Mississippi State to the Lions, I think great defensive end. You Ed, like him? Ed, uh, Ed Oliver, I'm not sold on, but his talent level from Houston, defensive tackle. Some people think he's the next Aaron Donald. Yes, they think he's just just tremendous. I mean, the Steel- people thought the Steelers at 20 were going to get Devin Bush from Michigan. Well, now Devin Bush is now like top 10 player going to Denver. Um Miami at 13. Like, I mean, everyone's saying maybe Drew Locke of Missouri, another quarterback, or they would take Haskins. Um, we talked about this earlier. I, I don't I, I, I don't think they're going to go quarterback. I think they're going to take uh, Fitzpatrick, keep this year, and they'll wait for next year for the quarterbacks to come. I don't think they're going to they're gonna jump high and take a quarterback in the first round. If Juwan Taylor from Florida makes it to 13, I could see them taking him. Because I think that the Dolphins, no offense Dolphins fans, I think they're, they're not in it to win it this year. So, Having Tunsil and then now uh, Taylor on the other side, that, that's building a foundation for success on your offensive line to when they do take that QB. But uh, absolutely, I could see them taking, you know, some drafts have Kyler Murray falling to 13. Right. And but that's what you said, though, is for some of these teams, it's exactly perfect. If you know you're going to have a young quarterback in two years, why not draft another offensive lineman now? Get that. That's what the Cowboys did. The Cowboys perfectly. were set for Dak perfectly. Prescott because yes. they had the great offensive line already. And then you can draft your running back or whoever you bring in, whether it's Elliott or anybody, to run behind it. But the key is to have the offensive lineman and not bring them as rookies. So in two years, like the Dolphins are looking, hopefully, they're looking long term and not just for this year. And I think that Fitzpatrick is going to be the quarterback this year. So I, as much as a lot of people think they're going to draft, uh, uh, you know, the Dolphins might go Drew Locke or another. I don't think they're going to go with a quarterback either. Um, you know, speaking of him, or speaking of just offensive line in general, getting down to 17 at the Giants, I could see them doing it. Um, you you like Jonah Williams uh, going to them. I think that they would take either him or Juwan Taylor if they happen to make it all the way down there. Right. I mean, there's those are the top offensive linemen. If you look at this draft, and if you're saying, well, where's the wide receivers? Where's the running backs? <laughs> it's not going to be happening. There's no Saquon Barkley that's going to go number two. I yeah. mean, Miles Sanders at Penn State, Miles Sanders, who was nothing like Saquon Barkley, is now projected to be the second best running back behind Jacobs of Alabama. Um, I don't think either one of them is going to be perhaps in the first round. Like, you might not even have a running back in the first round. And wide receiver-wise... It's not exciting this draft for the for the wide receiver position. Marquise Brown for for Oklahoma is someone to talk to, but but we're going to talk about fantasy because I don't care where these running backs are drafted, they're going to play. So you got to focus on this. Always. Everyone loves fantasy, and this is going to be crucial because last year I, I said rookie running backs, rookie running backs, rookie running backs, and again the same thing. But I really I really like the uh, in terms of you know seeing Bryce Love of Stanford is a good, but he's going to probably go in the third or fourth round. But he's gonna he's going to be a fantasy guy. So just because these guys you can't draft fantasy unless you have fantasy defense which not many people play but it's <laughs> i don't respect your league we're gonna defense. say these names <laughs> but you're also gonna have these running backs are important but i like at the quarterback position some of these guys are like will greer for west virginia i saw him play a ton of games i love him i think he's gonna be a i he has the potential to be a great pro but he could go in the sixth round the you could get round. him fifth or sixth yeah. unbelievable I, I like i've saw gardner Minshew, washington state i think he's a winner i think he can go fifth and sixth and of course you know there's been some very good nfl quarterbacks tom brady who's gone in the sixth Never round. heard of him. <laughs> so, I mean, you can go. And I think that's why instead of spending a position and the money to get draft these quarterbacks early, I, I think there are some good quarterbacks at the end that but, but perhaps, I mean, I see, uh, you know, where they could go. Gard, I like Gardner. I think Gardner Minshew, I would be shocked. I think he's going to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. I really am high on him. I'm excited to see uh, how this all shakes out. I love the draft. And I can't wait to talk next week on Iron Sports about just how everything shook up. Before we move on, Ira, I mean, before we wrap it up, Ira, I got to bring it up. Your Pittsburgh Pirates have the best record in baseball, and that's followed by teams like Tampa Bay and Minnesota. Nobody saw this coming to start the season. Well, nobody saw it coming, but um, and including me. The Pirates, are they're pitching. It's both Tampa Bay and the Pirates. It's like they are healthy, and their pitchers are pitching great, and that's the key. I mean, it, it, the, the – uh, 
uh, and it's amazing. Tampa Bay and the Pirates had a trade where they actually traded the Tampa Bay traded Archer to the Pirates, and the Pirates traded Glassnode to Tampa Bay, and both, both are pitching, better in their new scenario. And they're both are better in their scenario. You know, the Pirates' best hitter is Melky Cabrera. I mean, they're not. It's look. They're, they're some of their best players are hitting like 114, 120, but it's really their pitching, and that's the key. And then what happens? And you look at these other teams who are having disappointments, like the Red Sox and the Yankees. Their pitching is letting them down. So it, it really comes down to pitching. But again, they've only played twenty games. There's 140 games to go, and it's really hard to to make uh, I think as the season gets on it, look the Yankees have had 14 people on the disabled list and they still they have, have a 500 team on the DL and they still have a 500 record that just shows these big money market teams are able to withstand Evaldi from the Red Sox just went on the DL or the IL as they call it but they can still withstand it again I, I've said when the season started, Dodgers and Astros. I'm still on Dodgers and Astros. I, these teams are so good. They are so much better than every other team. The Dodgers are phenomenal. I mean, they have so many hitters. Jock Peters. Kershaw's Muncie, back and looks okay. They have had Kershaw for one start. Bueller, has had, their other starting pitcher, best pitcher, has off to a real slow start. And they're still 15-9. and nine. I mean, I, they're going to win 105, 110 Cody games. Bellinger would be the MVP if the season ended today. I mean, uh, they're just – they have guys come from, like, Max Muncy last year. The guys aren't supposed to be great, and all of a sudden they're superstars in L.A. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And I think these teams – and the key is they can go one through eight, one through you – know, in terms of hitters. Everybody, the eighth hitter on the team besides the pitcher in the Astros, nine hitters, they're all good hitters. And yeah. they work through these lineups. And the Astros started out slow, but then they won 12 in a row. So I love those two teams. The Dodgers and Astros, I would be shocked if they're not in the World Series. The Astros have two guys in their minor league system, one of them being Jordan Alvarez, who would be hitting three or four on half the teams in the league. They're in their minor league system because they just can't get them up there. It's absolutely crazy. Ira, before you wrap it up, where are you headed this week? Um, I'm probably I'm going to be in Los Angeles, so I'll probably see the Pirates versus the Dodgers. You should try to get in one of these Vegas uh, Golden Knights games if they happen to get one. Well, that could be a possibility. Before we go, I do want to say Crawford Con. I watched that boxing match. I paid the seventy dollars for it. And uh, worth it. Crawford Crawford uh, Terrence Crawford uh, is besides Levinchenko one of the pound for pound best fighters in the world. Con. Uh, it was interesting at the end because it was a, ended on a low blow. He dominated the whole fight. Con got hit with a low blow and then gave up in the sixth round. And uh, Crawford was able to win. But it'll be interesting because there's another spider, fighter, Earl Spence Jr., who's twenty five. And 0. Crawford's 34-0. Everybody wants them to fight, but it could be something with Pacquiao Mayweather where five years from now they will fight because their managers are two. <laughs> One is managed by Al Heyman, the other is by Bob Arum. But it was a, actually it was a it was a it was interesting because I love seeing Crawford fight, and I thought Khan was going to do better against him, and he didn't. He got he got destroyed. We are out of time. I want to thank John Feinstein for so much for stopping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports. <laughs>